So I think something about this movie just feels very healing to watch and you know like even in those dark moments there's always the good moments to balance it out and I think by focusing so much on the good and the bad and how they work together throughout the film this movie just does such a good job of making people feel seen and validated. Welcome to this week's episode of Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens, our podcast where we talk about feminism and pop culture. I'm Nellie. And I'm Pate. Even though we are recording this on the last day of September and releasing this episode on October 2nd, we wanted to wrap up September by dedicating an episode to talking about the the romanticization of mental illness in teen films since September is Suicide Awareness Month. This is an issue that is close to our hearts, and we will be sharing some resources and action items at the end of the episode, so stay tuned. While there is a whole genre of films to choose from when talking about this theme, this week we're talking about Perks of Being a Wallflower, written and directed by Stephen, how do you pronounce his name? Chobosky? That sounded right. It's Chobani. Chobosky sounds good. (laughs) It's the yogurt, Chobani. Okay. Written and directed by Stephen Chbosky and based on Chbosky's 1999 novel of the same name, Perks of Being a Wallflower is a 2012 American coming-of-age drama film starring Logan Lerman, Emma Watson, Ezra Miller, Mae Whitman, and so many other fantastic actors, including Paul Rudd, a king. This week, we're joined by our dear friend and fellow scholar, Sydney Leibfritz. She is a fellow graduate from Swanee, the University of the South, where she double majored in English and politics and has an interest in creative nonfiction, political nonfiction, memoirs, magical realism, feminism, young adult fiction, middle grade fiction, and literary fiction. And on Monday, she starts her new job at the Vanderbilt Library. So everyone give her a round of applause. We're so excited to have her on the pod today to talk about this important topic. So welcome, Sydney. Thank you for having me. Before we start, we want to give a quick trigger warning. Please note this film contains scenes about sexual assault, abuse, self-harm, and suicide. The various triggers are explained mostly through euphemisms or just implied. Still, it is a movie about coping with trauma, both past and present, which could easily trigger people who have experienced or are currently dealing with trauma. While we've chosen this movie because of the ways in which it handles these topics and brings attention to them, we want to recognize that this movie and our conversation could pose some potential triggers, so please be sure to practice self-care and click away to one of our more light-hearted episodes. If you'd like a recommendation, we suggest El Enchanted. Very, very lighthearted. <laughs> um, as we said before, we'll be sharing some resources at the end of the episode, so stay tuned. So let's dive in. Sydney, we're so glad that you're here with us today. Um, what made you want to talk about this genre and particularly Perks of Being a Wallflower, and why do you think it is worthy of critical analysis? Yeah, um, one of my biggest interests on the side of everything I do is talking about representation in YA fiction. 
I'm a big YA nerd, read a lot of it, read The Hunger Games way too many times to count. <laughs> um, but I'm really interested in this subgenre of YA that focuses on mental health and like different kinds of mental issues. So I grew up reading a ton of them, Perks being the one I read the most <laughs> and the one that I watched the most as a kid. But there's just so many in this genre from 13 Reasons Why, All the Bright Places, uh, It's Kind of a Funny Story. All of this stuff is just so prevalent in that, that series. And because it's YA, there tends to be this huge romanticization issue with just all of these authors trying to make mental illness very appealing and make get the young adult audience almost want to like be a part of that or identify with things that they might not necessarily be dealing with. So I was really interested with Perks because each of the characters has their own little space to breathe and to become fully developed characters. And I think it does a really good job of showing all of the issues at once without straying from that line of romanticization too much. So it's a really interesting one for me. Also, I just watched it a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, this was, um, so wait, this came out in 2012. Okay, I kind of feel like Perks of Being a Wallflower was one of the first movies that I saw in theaters, like, without my parents. <laughs> that might be kind of Call the cool police. Yeah, just so you know, like, they dropped me off, um, went with my best friend Kayla, shout out, I know for a fact she's listening, <laughs> she's a loyal fan. She always listens every week. <laughs> Um, but I do remember that, like, that period of my lifetime, like, seeing it in theaters. Honestly, I think it was probably good that I saw it in such a public place. Um, but also I got, like, so emotional. And as we were saying kind of before we started recording, like, uh, I had not, I did not, like, seek help for my own mental illness until, um, until college. So this was well before, um, I feel like I'm making myself seem so young. I don't know. I guess 2012, we were like <laughs> freshmen in high school. I had to have gone sooner to the movies before then. But I guess I'm saying it's like the it was freshman- eight years ago. So like, I know I do really. That. Well, yeah. So we were then. Um, I'm bad at math. We're all English or women and gender studies. Or 14, 14. We were, I was 14. Almost. Yeah. Um, we were Charlie's age when, when this came out. Yeah. Well, I actually really do feel like this, like hit close to home with me when I watched it not necessarily to the extreme of which things happen but also yeah like I I remember like bawling my eyes out in the theater and then like walking out of the theater I actually ran into my dance teacher there and she was like are you okay and I was like no. <laughs> like I was like simply no but also it was like I think that kind of like you said Sydney I I think it does a good job with these issues. I would love to talk about it alongside, and maybe we'll do this a little bit later in the episode, but talk about it alongside some of its peers that you named um, in terms of the peers in the genre, like 13 Reasons Why. Um, Like I fear watching that show because I fear it will be triggering. Um, But I really do think that Perks of Being Wallflower handles this issue in a way that makes me feel like seen. And, um, it does very much have this, like, it gets better um, kind of message while also saying it really sucks. <laughs> like, life, like, really sucks and it's hard. Um, so, anyway, Pete, I would love to hear 
I didn't realize this before, and this is usually the case with me. Usually we watch movies that Pate has seen and I have not seen yet. Would you say that's true, Pate? Yeah. I just Yeah, probably. I really true and it's not because Pate's like, we're watching this. It's because I haven't seen anything. <laughs> but this is a movie that which is wild to have a podcast like this and be like, but I've never seen this movie. Um, but actually this time Pate had never seen Perks of Being a Wallflower. So Pate, I would love to hear your thoughts. Um of like your first time watching it okay I'm embarrassed to admit that like probably the reason in high school that I didn't watch or read it is because everyone else was watching it and reading it or at least in my high school and so I was like I was definitely that girl in high school that was like oh everyone has knee-high Michael Kors boots I'm not gonna wear knee-high Michael Kors boots when I really wanted to wear them and like, I was not just, like, like other girls trope hey we can't not, have like, that. other girls but like I wanted to do what they were doing and I mm-hmm. deprived myself of that even though I wanted it because I wanted to be different so bad thankfully I you know gave up on that a while ago because we just need to do what we want even if it is basic so I think like my intentions of not watching Perks of Being a Wallflower were bad, but watching it for the first time as a 22 year old, I don't think 14, 15 or even 16 year old me would appreciate it back then like I do now. Um, I'm just thinking about like some of the, the, the quote unquote deep movies I saw back then. I don't know if you think um, The Fault in Our Stars is deep, but like I remember crying about that and like texting my like boyfriend when I was 16 to me like I hope you don't die of cancer like I totally missed the point of like some of those like movies and I think if I had watched like oh a Wallflower now it's like if I had watched it in high school I just don't think I would have appreciated it as much and like the quotes I like some of the quotes that like that were on this movie like gave me chills and I was like bawling at the end and because I thought the characters were like so well done and the story was so just like it just like really resonated and like you feel for these people but when I was 16 I don't know if I could if I would just cry because it's sad I don't know I think I really enjoyed watching it for the first time at age 22. Was that offensive of me that I texted my boyfriend at 16 and like said that like y'all were both laughing so hard offensive I just think it's I shouldn't be laughing this is what I talked about in last week's episode I really do be laughing when stuff is just not okay to laugh at necessarily but I just think it's like a surprising thing to do like that's your takeaway from that movie was I hope my boyfriend doesn't die from cancer yeah I mean I don't want him to die now wherever he is yeah fair my takeaway from like John Green's movie was not what it probably should have been. And I'm sure my takeaway from Perks of being a wallflower wouldn't have been what I took away from it today if I had watched it in high right. school. No, absolutely. Um, I agree. Nellie, did I mean, you I... read the book? No. Okay. I know. Sydney, I'm guessing you did read the Sydney book. definitely did. You did, it's been a you while. did say that you did. But um, okay. I feel like I agree with, I do agree with you, Pay, in terms of like how takeaways are different. Like I... I think because I've gotten the help that I needed. I do think this is an important thing for people to hear. I think because I got help, um, like, very much now, like, have normalized therapy and, like, 
just other like mental health resources um, that like for me were and like still are stigmatized in society, but also that I have like internalized stigma as well. I think now since I've been able to like seek help for those things and see like the 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 effects that that have on me I don't I don't think I was nearly as emotional and also because I know what happens I mean obviously but like I don't think I was nearly as emotional watching the movie this time I even really thought I was like oh my god I need to like gear myself up to watch this because I'm gonna have a good hard cry um and then I honestly was fine and as we know from talking about this podcast I cry at the most absurd things um but like I actually was like oh this is something that like I mean, it's not to say that during all of this time in quarantine that my mental health has been, like, 100%. That's, like, definitely not true. But I definitely think I've been able to see, like, how, what I need as an individual and that, like, perks wasn't, that is very different than, like, how I saw, thought about these issues in when I was 14 and saw this for the first time and was someone that was, like, not seeking mental health, was not even aware, um of the help I needed and yeah I'm I'm rambling at this point but like I agree like I definitely I think part of why I was so emotional at 14 watching this was because I was like yes like this makes me feel seen yeah I completely agree with that also um I think when I first watched I was really attached to Charlie just because I identified so closely with his character and like all the scenes where he was sitting in class and couldn't talk and then near the end he starts developing and becoming more confident in himself so something about this movie when I was like growing up watching it and watching it like once a year I just I just love seeing all of the friends that were so supportive of him throughout that process so I think something about this movie just feels very healing to watch and you know like even in those dark moments, there's always the good moments to balance it out. And I think by focusing so much on the good and the bad and how they work together throughout the film, this movie just does such a good job of making people feel seen and validated. And even when they're making mistakes throughout it, it just feels like that's not a reflection of them so much as like their fault in that moment. Absolutely. And I think that there's particularly the mistakes made by like you're saying by these young people are really important to be highlighting yeah and that's the thing no one's a real villain in this movie it's just they're all just people trying their best and like even though they make these horrible mistakes they're allowed to learn from them and grow from them even if we don't see it on screen near the end but they just grow (laughs) throughout the film it's so nice to see that character development yeah. I'd be curious. Um, I know this isn't a question we have written, I don't think. Um, but are there, like, I know that the the movie is written direct, written and directed by the person that wrote the book, um, Chobani. Um, shout out to him. We love him. Um, but are there, like, discrepancies between the two? Like, is, are there things... I'm just speaking, I'm wondering just because I I did not read the book. I probably should. I love the movie so much. It would be a nice, probably a quick read um, in quarantine. But I would love to hear if if you have thoughts on that, Sydney. Yeah, it's been a really long time since I've read it. It, I'm trying to think of what the main differences are. So I think Candace has a few plot lines that are dropped off from the film. And they're in a few deleted scenes, but 
I don't know. I, I think Candace probably got cut the most from the movie, just because I feel like her plot line was very flat and kind of thrown in there. And that's the girl that steals jeans. Oh no, Candace is the sister. sister. Okay, that says something that I was like, who's Candace? Exactly. (laughs) And like, I feel like Charlie should have like shown Candace's personality outside of her relationship with Ponytail Derek, just because like he is closest with his sister. Like these are friends that he's just met. I don't understand why Candace doesn't come through as like fully rounded out as a character as some of the other ones. Yeah, yeah, I saw that on the Wikipedia page. It's, like, things that were left out in the movie that were in the book. And it was, like, mainly about Candace's sister. And I honestly forgot her name, too, just now until you were saying that. But that makes so much sense because, like, you know, you she's kind of like an afterthought. And then when, like, Charlie's having his breakdown and he calls her, you know, part of me didn't expect him to call her. Um, That just kind of was just like, wait, what's happening? But if like, I feel like if she had been, you know, showcased more in the film, it would have flowed together more realistically. But yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about Charlie and Sam's relationship specifically, because I find it very interesting. And I don't know what to make of it. And maybe that's the point. But, um, you know, I'd love to hear y'all's opinions on it. So I wanted to know what y'all thought about the relationship. Do you think it was a healthy friendship? Do you think it was unhealthy? When I was watching it, it kind of reminded me of Joe and Lori from Little Women, where people, like, ship them together, but they truly, like, don't fit together. But this is just my first time watching it. I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts as veteran watchers. Yeah, I, I struggle with that too. I I think that's probably one of the points in the film where it's really hard to figure out what's going on, mostly because Charlie and Sam don't know what's going on either. And I don't know, I feel like with Sam, she's very hesitant to get into the relationship because when she was a freshman, she was also pursued by seniors. So I think that's a big part of why she's so distant from this relationship and trying to steer Charlie towards other people. But something about it is just so forced, like you said. And I also think that because it's Charlie's point of view, we get a lot of the manic pixie vibes at times, mostly in the book. In the film, still quite a bit because of the cinematography and the way we see Sam. But I think he just has this vision of who she is. And when she doesn't align with that, he just switches point of view. And so he just doesn't want to challenge those ideas at all. I don't know. What do you think, Nellie? It's interesting because I feel like you just articulated it in a way that I haven't been able to. And it feels almost like just like from a feminist perspective or a WGS perspective it feels like the male gaze and I think that that is why just because we're seeing her through his lens that's why I think it feels icky to me we're seeing her through his gaze and we're learning about her exclusively that way and I think that like you said when she doesn't fit the mold that he has like made her then um he 
either it makes us feel like something's wrong or he just kind of like will negate it essentially. Um, so I agree. Like I had not been able to put it into that sort of thinking, but I appreciate you saying that. And I think that for me to, I don't know, I definitely see them as a friendship. And then honestly, when like the end of the movie, when it seems like he's in a much better place mentally, and then like they have their kiss, spoiler, I guess, if you haven't seen it, but they have like their little kiss, like in the truck. Like, honestly, I felt very comfortable when that happened. I was like, and I was kind of questioning why is it that I feel comfortable when this is happening. And I think like, for me, I just think like, you can totally work on your own mental health when you're in a relationship with someone. But I think the best way to do it, especially at this age is to like take time for yourself and not be putting that on another person as well as like not even not putting it on another person, but not investing your mental health completely based on another person. And I think that, I think part of the reason why he starts to get better at the like beginning of the movie is because he has this relationships and then many of the things that happen like are triggering to him. I don't want to give away completely the entire plot, but I just think that is what makes me feel icky too, is I think it's not necessarily the age dynamic, but it's the fact that like he is like not in an okay place and she seemingly is. I mean, it's not like she always has been, but then like, I don't know. I think for the sake of both of them, their relationship isn't like, it's not possible for it to be um, healthy or sustainable until like he has gotten the help he needs, I think. And it's not to say like, I think I'm talking about mental health. Like it's something that you, that like ends, like once you get help, it's like over. And I don't feel that way about it either, but I just think I do believe in like, it it, it can be really hard. And this is my, this is probably my own personal bias. I just think it's really hard to work on your mental health when you're in a relationship with someone. Um, And that also probably comes from me being an Enneagram too. And like, letting people dump all of their problems on me and then like using that as an excuse not to like seek help myself so for me I don't think I would have been able to do this but again this is like getting away from perks of being a wallflower more so me being like this is my personal tea you can be in a relationship and still struggle with your mental health I I just personally think it is really difficult at this age to see to seek the help that you need when you're committing yourself to another person and trying to navigate a relationship for the first time. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think, I think one of the issues for me is how much Charlie develops his personality around Sam and what she wants him to be and what she thinks that, what he thinks that she is. So like he starts making all of these mixtapes. He, um, he tries to, I don't know, I see it mostly in the music and how he tries to like have obscure music taste because that's what Sam is into. And then also just like conforming to her friend group and making a lot of the same comments that she makes to them. Like, I just, I can't get past how he treats Mary Elizabeth for most of it because Sam also doesn't like Mary Elizabeth. And I don't know, some, another thing that bothered me about it was, um, or not bothered me. I guess a question I have about it is the codependency because to some degree, Charlie, like, really just wants to, like, protect Sam and, like, be with her and be, like, that good guy that she didn't get. And she wants the same thing for him, even though we don't see it. Like, the scene that bothers me the most is when they're sitting on the bed and she says something about, like, I just want the first kiss you have to be with someone you love, which really bothered me because, like, 
after watching the movie, you realize, like, Charlie didn't have that. Charlie has already been abused by his aunt. And I, something about Sam trying to, like, take that boundary that far really bothered me. And I just, their entire dynamic just feels very codependent and very, like, trauma bonding. And I oh, think yeah. that's one of the questions I have about the movie is like, how much of responsibility do the friends have to each other in terms of like watching out for their mental health and like not encouraging these behaviors, but also like creating boundaries. Um, that just made me think about that specific scene where Patrick, well, well technically Brad's dad had walked in on Brad and Patrick together and started beating Brad up. And Patrick definitely had just gone through something extremely traumatic. But then when he's telling Charlie about it, he, like, kisses him. And then he, like, cries and says sorry. But, like, you know, I think that is something I was, like, not uncomfortable with. But your point about trauma bonding, like, was it okay to Patrick, like, for Patrick to just, like, start kissing Charlie because he was, like, coping with trauma, I would probably say no. Um, but I don't know what I was, like, trying to get with that point, but that's just a scene that came to mind when I was thinking about, like, you know, how each character deals with their trauma differently and how it can affect other people because, you know, Charlie has already experienced unconsensual misconduct right so I don't know what if y'all would like consider like what y'all thought about that scene do you think I don't know what I'm trying to say cut cut some of that out Nellie but yeah yeah I agree with that as well I mean I think the part about that scene that bothers me is that Charlie keeps coming back even after that boundary has been breached and he never like sets any rules about like when people need help that isn't his so like when he sees his sister being abused he just looks away from it and when he sees Patrick going through this very traumatic experience he tries to become a substitute for real help by just driving around with him every night for a month or so and I just that's the thing I think is the closest to romanticizing mental illness in this movie for me it's the fact that they're all just so dependent on each other. And it's this idea that like friend groups have to just constantly be there for people and not care for themselves at all in those moments. And I think it just like watching this as a teenager, I could see how like, oh, well, my entire friend group is struggling, but no one cares. So we're just going to take on all of this burden myself. And I think that that is a very iffy message to send to teenagers who the film's marketed towards, that they don't have to put themselves in a situation where they are taking on all of the burdens other people have and not looking after themselves. Because Charlie, uh, during, after his attempt scene, Charlie is talking to the, the doctor and he says something about how he just can't stop seeing all the pain around him and he's just taking it all in. And I think that like the fact that he's so, like he's not good about setting boundaries with his friends is a big part of why he eventually collapses because when all of his friends leave, he has no one to fall back on 
and he doesn't feel needed outside of their friend group. He feels invisible and like a wallflower again. So I think that that's one part of the movie I would really question quite a bit, but. Well, I have a kind of a question for you, Sydney. I know the whole point of you picking this movie and book is because it's one of your favorites, but like what specifically do you think the movie does right in terms of like mental health and advocacy because it is geared towards like young adults and it is very impressionable. I think it it really does a good job of making people feel seen and capturing that essence of like, I see all this pain around me and all these things, but I want to still have hope because it's very easy to like, because like I was in a friend group very similar to this where each of my friends had very serious problems at home and with their relationships. And so like I soaked in a lot of this stuff too. So I identified with Charlie in that sense, but it does a good job of like capturing that and still showing that like, even though there's all this pain, there's all these good moments too. Like it's just about holding on to those little moments, like the tunnel scene and the party scenes (laughs) and just, I don't know, feeling embraced for who you are and being comfortable with who you are, the good, the bad, the messy, all of that is really nice to see in this movie. Also, I think it handles the suicide attempt scene very well because in like 13 Reasons Why, there was a very graphic representation. And in thir- in um, All the Bright Places, it's very romanticized and very dark in terms of um, not showing the pain of the person who dies in that movie and just showing um, how it affects someone else in terms of their relationship. I don't know, very complicated. I don't want to spoil that movie. (laughs) Um, But this one, it did a good job of showing like how much is going through his head at that moment, what's bringing it on, storytelling in terms of like just everything that's led him up to that point. But it doesn't show the how, which is very dangerous for any kind of representation. One of the main rules about representing suicide is that you never show the method and you don't talk about the method. So I think that that was a really good part about this, especially for a 2012 movie. We've digressed since then, I think. I appreciate you touching on the romanticization of these other shows and movies. Cause I think, I mean, I'm grateful that others have consumed them before me. Um, just be, particularly, like I said earlier, I'm talking about 13 reasons why, like I, no, I should not watch that. Like, I just simply shouldn't. Um, just from what I've heard, I have no interest in consuming it. I'm sure there are parts of it that are helpful to some, but from what I've heard, it is triggering. So I have no interest in that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I do think that, I don't think at 14, I necessarily realized how good of a job that Perks did, but I do feel like it gets you like, worried and um and I'm sure it is triggering to some and I do want to name that but I do think like it gets you concerned enough and it sends the message without like you said being overly showy and romantic romanticizing aftermath too and then like his recovery from that which I thought was also good so important times it's just like oh well he got treatment and now he's done 
but in yeah. his little monologue afterwards he's talking about like how hard it was all this self-discovery that he did in therapy and with his counselor so I think showing that part was also helpful compared to like just death yeah and I think um in particular like one of my even though it's like a really hard scene to watch like I feel like one of my favorite scenes is when like his parents are kind of realizing everything that's going on it's honestly heartbreaking but it also is so moving because I think that is like a really hard I'm not a parent but I think like having ongoing kind of conversations about my own mental health with my parents it can be really hard to like put that stuff on them because I think inevitably like they are going to carry that like they will carry the like weight of their child um and so for me when they are kind of like learning what has happened and then also like coming in and basically apologizing and like holding him I just think, like, seeing his dad stand in the doorway and get emotional, I was like, okay, this is, like, huge character growth and development. And for me, it's, like, obviously a very, like, heartbreaking scene, but also very moving. And to me, like, one of my favorites of the film. And that's, like, a new favorite. I don't think, like, when I watched that 14, I was like, yes. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. So. Also, I think it's just great that, like, for a teen movie focused on mental health it's a male character in charge of it because a lot of the time we get the the um female perspective and like females are allowed to be um emotional and very self-reflective on camera and whatnot whereas men are often told to be angry or express everything through violence in um not like that's the only answer but like in terms of representation in these films we never really see like a very vulnerable male character and so I think by centering the movie on him that was a layer that I really enjoyed also seeing um a male survivor of sexual abuse I think was very powerful because it wasn't I don't know it did a good job of showing how you can miss the signs Mm -hmm. and also how he himself didn't know what was happening until later are there other things we want to talk about before we move to our final question? Because I do think that would be kind of a good transition. But Paige, did you have another question you wanted to ask? Well, I kind of wanted to ask Cindy a question about young adult books. Yeah, go for good, it. The good, the bad, and My the ugly. project. Yes, please. Exactly. That sounds great. Like, I definitely have read my young adult books and, and that have mental health in it. And I'd be happy to like add on to whatever your answer is. But like, I was curious about like young adult books you think that are good and that you think are bad because you just said all the bright places was not good but I first off didn't know that was a book turned movie just googled it looks all right but yeah I would be interested to like hear your opinion because when we were talking about it before we started recording um something like a book that I remember reading in college I keep bringing up John Green. I swear I don't, like, worship him. But his book, Turtles All the Way Down, have you read that? I haven't read that one. It's on my to-read list. But I was thinking of looking for Alaska. That (laughs) one, yeah. yeah. That one, of course, everyone thinks about. But Turtles All the Way Down wasn't, like, very his most famous one. But it's, like, the perspective of a high school student with OCD and anxiety. And reading it as someone who doesn't have OCD or diagnosed anxiety it's like it was very like 
good for me to read that in someone's perspective and have a new understanding of like someone who has, you know, mental health and other issues and like their struggles. And it's not just like, you can't just be like, Oh, stop worrying about it. Like, you know, how people are just like, like you said, put on a face mask, relax, self care. And it's like, no, literally I can't do that. And so that young adult novel was very, you know, helpful for me to understand someone else's struggles. So I, I was just interested in like some of your favorites and some that you would like stay away from. Yeah, I've heard really good things about Turtles All the Way Down. It, it's, yeah, I've heard really good things about that. I think with All the Right Places, I haven't read it in such a long time and I don't remember it that well because I kind of like, I don't know, I went in autopilot at one point and just kind of coasted through the rest to see what was going to happen. But one thing about that book that was strange was the way that, oh my god, what's his name? Finch talks about his bipolar disorder. He always compares it to like being awake and like being asleep, which in itself I don't think would be terrible, but a lot of the audience caught on to that and started misusing it in terms of like their mental health. So like people were self-diagnosing themselves all the time after this book came out because they were like, oh, I'm awake now, or oh, I'm asleep now. And it wasn't, it was a big issue in terms of just like that book being the reference sheet they were using for all these diagnoses. But I think that one was really weird. I know it me means a lot to a lot of people and I think because I don't have bipolar disorder, I hesitate to say like good representation, bad representation. But I think that that book in terms of the suicide scene was very problematic because it was almost entirely centered on Violet and how she was grieving the death of Finch. And it really felt like going through a breakup more so than going through a suicide scene and like surviving that. And so I think because that book is entirely centered on this romance, it like is the definition of romanticizing it. So something about that one just rubs me the wrong way. Also, what are some other ones? I have a ton of books. I was also just going to ask you, well, I have a question about a show that has a suicide scene in it. Okay. Your thoughts on it. But also I want you to like, if you have more to say about the young adult novels, I don't want to necessarily cut you off I on mean, that. I'm sure there's more. I have read so many of them at this point. Yeah. And they're all together. Podcast oh, also, audience, like, you can't see this, but Sydney has a whole color-coded bookshelf behind her. It's so aesthetically pleasing. Thank you. Like, reading book queen. I bet I can tell where Perks is, because it's a green book cover, right? It's probably in the green section. Probably right there. Oh my gosh, I guess the one next to it, but there it is. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we'll have to provide a photo so people can see your amazing bookshelf that I am extremely jealous of. So I've been watching The Politician, and I don't know if y'all have seen it. I hope to talk about it on the podcast at some point because I think it's worthy of talking about. Um, and we haven't talked about shows in a while, so maybe we should head back in that direction at some point. Let us know if you're interested, listeners. Um, but like the very first spoilers if you haven't seen it but like there is a suicide in the very first episode and there is like a trigger warning it's definitely not like a 
it is not specifically about suicide, the trigger warning, but there is like a trigger warning surrounding mental health and seeking help at the, and how like this isn't necessarily a representation of that um, at the beginning of the show. But I do think like, I didn't know the, um, I didn't know what you did, Sydney, about kind of how the, the ethics surrounding representation of suicide um, and, like, you do know the method, um, you hear a gunshot, like, I would just be curious, I don't know if you've seen the show, and if you haven't, apologies for this spoiler, but I would just be curious to hear your thoughts, and also, like, we can totally cut this if it seems not applicable, but that was just something I had thought about when we were thinking about suicide representation. I haven't seen the first season in a while, I just watched Why? the second season, but, um, I think the main thing with suicide representation is not showing the method and not showing anything very graphic that people can then romanticize out of context. Because a big issue is that like people will take those and make them into little, oh God, GIFs, GIFs, yeah. um, and then put them on Tumblr and people will just reblog them out of context. Right. So like it happens a ton with skins, it happens a lot with um, 13 Reasons Why, Sometimes Perks is thrown in there, but it's not the graphic scenes. It's just kind of Charlie crying. Right. Oh, I've seen that gif. I literally have seen it. So they just appear everywhere. And the main thing is that, like, within Tumblr, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, there's all these subsets of people who actively try to promote the, like, self-harm and images it's a terrible community that should be banned from every single platform and they should definitely put more energy into shutting that down. But like, I think my main issue is TikTok because TikTok, you don't choose what comes onto your feed. So if they get a hint that like, oh, mental illness is a, is a big part of my life, they'll just feed all of that stuff into it. So it, I think by having those graphic scenes, like in the context of the show, it's already bad, but it also comes back in with people who never asked to watch the show that are then exposed to it online because of these people that are actively putting out these graphic images in the hopes of triggering someone. I'm so glad I asked because I didn't, I, yeah, that's, I just appreciate you sharing that because I think it is, um, it's an important thing for people to know like why that representation is bad because of how it can be used um, beyond the, the film and show itself. So Sydney, do you have anything else you want to touch base on before we dive into our final question? This is kind of off topic, but it also bothered me how the drugs were used in the film and how the film kind of glosses over the fact that Charlie has so much privilege in terms of what he can get away with and what he has access to because that's another fault that I have with the movie overall is that while I think it has good messages and raises good questions about mental health it also ignores the fact that a lot of people can't afford health care to have these issues addressed in a professional setting outside of these friend groups And so I think by having this entire movie depend on that friend group as a source of stability, but then showing that like the option for him to get professional care was always there is a little questionable because I think for a lot of teenagers that healthcare isn't available and they do have to depend on their friends, but I don't know. The message I just, I got was pretty much like get professional treatment, but that's not always enough. Like, 
you might not have access to it, you might have other priorities. And even though like I would never say like don't go get treatment or anything because that's ridiculous. I just I think it simplifies it to a point of um saying everyone has access to this treatment, why wouldn't you use it and presents it in kind of a flat way near the end even though I do like the representation. I think right. it's still a little problematic. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, so the age-old question, and I think this is actually very interesting. I'm not even sure how I will answer it, so I'm very interested to see what y'all have to say, but is Perks of Being a Wallflower a feminist film slash book? Sydney, do you want to go first or should I? I'm thinking, so you can go. Okay, I can go. I've thought about this a little bit. Um, I don't know, just because I have the advantage of having done this for the last 20 weeks. So, um, <laughs> I, which is crazy, y'all. This is our 21st episode. That's nuts. Um, I feel like we didn't acknowledge last give week. Our, give our show a beer. Like, as <laughs> Quinn would say, give her a gluten-free beer. <laughs> okay, so in terms of feminism in Perks of Being Wallflower, I honestly don't know how I would have answered this question a couple weeks ago, but I do feel like since our Get Out episode was the first time we talked about a movie where the protagonist was a male, I think that I feel kind of similarly to how I felt that week in terms of, like, this movie is a feminist film in the sense that it draws attention to issues that are related to feminism. I think that, like we said earlier, representation surrounding a male survivor survivor of sexual abuse, a male survivor of suicide. It's also similar to like what we were talking about last week with RBG, like these issues, like toxic masculinity and gender roles and things like that in society hurt both men and women. And it's not to say that like they hurt men and women the same way, but I do think that it is clear that in this movie, while it is very difficult for any any individual to seek resources and help for mental health, I do think, and this is like necessar- not necessarily a super scholarly perspective, but I do think that like it is particularly hard for men. And at least in terms of representation, it's r- rare to have that representation. So for me, I think this movie is a feminist film just because it is drawing to attention to an issue that... Um, goes unrepresented oftentimes but like I said as we're continuing to define and redefine what our feminism is I think that because of its representation of mental health I think it is um in terms of like like racial representation there's pretty much none and so I definitely think I want to name that um I think this movie is intersectionally feminist in like terms of sexuality and things like that um and that experience but I really do not think it gives much intersection of identity. And I think that's important to name. Yeah, I agree with so much of that. Um, I think in terms of intersectionality, it's definitely lacking a little bit. But I think overall, I would say it's a feminist film, not because it's perfect, but because it shows like real struggles. Like the characters are messy because people are messy. And even though they make mistakes that sometimes go with that, the film, I think, does a good job of, like, pointing out those errors and how they're harming other people throughout it. And, I don't know, I would say it's feminist, but having trouble putting it into words. I mean, I'm in the same boat with you, because the point you made about how Sam is kind of 
idol not idolized but definitely like put on a pedestal by charlie and then also how mary elizabeth is portrayed like she's not portrayed in a great light and i feel like we were supposed to be like oh charlie this woman's terrible which like she was because she was portrayed that way but you know i don't you know find that necessarily empowering I don't know still how I would label it. Um, I think it's super helpful in so many ways and empowering for so many people, but I don't know if I could label it definitively a feminist film. That being said, I really enjoyed it. I'll watch it again. I'll recommend it to people because I think it has, you know, so many important topics that need to be talked about. I really loved just talking about Mary Elizabeth. I really like valued her as a character and just like as a person more so this time around than I did when I first watched it. And I think that kind of plays into what you were saying, Pate, just where I think I very very much bought into what the film was trying to, or what Charlie's perspective was pushing onto me, not even necessarily the film, but like the Charlie's perspective was pushing onto me was that like, this is a horrible person and like she's insufferable and I don't, I think a very anti, like internalized misogyny and anti-feminist perspective of Mary Elizabeth. Whereas I feel like now I watch her and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's like very misunderstood and also just like I don't know. I also just love May Whitman. So I think this time watching it, I noticed a lot more details about Mary Elizabeth that I'd missed the first several times. Being the New Year scene when Charlie is sitting next to her, flashing back, she's crying as he walks away from her, which means that like I don't know. I think she is like in a very underrepre, a uh, very underrated part of the film's message about we choose, we accept the love we think we deserve because throughout the film she's constantly chasing Charlie trying to accept someone who doesn't want her and makes it very clear but like with the message of we accept the love we think we deserve it's focused almost entirely on Sam and uh, Patrick and Brad but I'd never really thought about it in terms of Mary Elizabeth until I saw this time like how mean Charlie was to her the entire film because like I think the first time they talk he tells her he hates her hair and then the second time he tells her that she's bossy and he she thought or he thought that she picked out his present for Christmas that he hated. Um, and then he finds out it was not from her and is okay with that. But he's just so mean to her throughout the movie and yet she still likes him and still like I don't know, like their entire relationship is such an odd dynamic that I don't fully understand how that happened and how, like, what was happening there. But, um, yeah, that was bizarre. I can't watch the Truth or Dare scene. I have to skip it every time it's because so it cringe. makes me so uncomfortable. Simply awful. It's Simply so cringe. Awful. I get the worst secondhand embarrassment from that scene. What does Patrick say? He's like, oh, that sucked or something like that. Or like, that was horrible. Or like, I don't know exactly what he says. Oh but immediately he doesn't skip a beat and he's like. He says like, that's fucked up, dude. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, oh, that's fucked up. <laughs> Yeah, back on, like, the bossy thing, and we should wrap up soon, so sorry, but, like, back on the bossy thing, it's just, like, literally infuriating to me when women are called bossy ever. Like, when people call me bossy, I'm literally, like, 
I I know that in a previous episode, Quinn talked about how like when she's called bossy, she's like learned to like reclaim that word, and that's very admirable admirable for me. When someone calls me that, it literally like drives me nuts, which I definitely embody characteristics that are said when that word is used, but I would prefer a different word. Um, but anyway, the, the like, accept the love we think we deserve component, I feel like with Charlie, I always saw it as being, he's accepting the love from Mary Elizabeth when he should be like, with Sam, like kind of similar to the idea that we talked about earlier where like, that's what you're wanting. But now I feel like when I watch it, I agree with you. It's not really like Charlie isn't accepting the love of Mary Elizabeth. He is like deflecting it. And also like, like more so than deflecting it, like straight up rejecting her to the extreme. And so, yeah, I appreciate you naming that because I don't think I ever until now, until rewatching it so many years later, like was not able to really see it for what it should be about and I think wait I think I'm changing my answer I think I it is a feminist film that has its own issues as we've been talking about but after thinking about it I think it is a feminist film because well what we have just discussed it has its faults as every movie we have I say that I feel like every week But, like, thinking about feminism, it is really just, like, equality between the genders. And, well, like, that's what, like, feminism definition is. And I think, Nellie, your point about, like, representation of, like, male mental health and, um, like, male sexual assault is not ever really seen and also not shown in an important and non-triggering way so that's my final answer the whole point and also like the whole point about Mary Elizabeth like I said this in the get out episode where we need to have like women characters of all sorts of presentations in the sense of personalities like we need to have evil women we need to have annoying women we need to have funny women because women are people and we have all of those um, emotions. So like, yeah, it's okay if Mary Elizabeth's annoying. I just didn't like how she was portrayed because as we've just discussed, like it didn't seem like she got any breaks. It was just like annoying after annoying after annoying after annoying. And Sydney, your point about like, Charlie was mean to her, but you don't think that because he's our main character. So yeah. Unless we have other things we want to add, I think we could dive into our resources. Girl, you go. So first, I'd like to plug an organization that's very important to me, the Trevor Project. The Trevor Project is the leading national organization providing crisis intervention and suicide prevention services to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning LGBTQ young people under 25. In particular, I'd like to plug their resources, Trevor Lifeline, Trevor Chat, Trevor Text, and Trevor Space. The Trevor Project's trained counselors are there to support you 24-7. If you are a young person in crisis, feeling suicidal, or in need of a safe and judgment-free place to talk, call the Trevor Lifeline now at 1-866-488-7386. Trevor Chat, Trevor Text, and Trevor Space are all provide safe spaces for LGBTQ plus and their or LGBTQ plus individuals and their friends and families or sorry friends and allies. Um, 
Additionally, I encourage you to make a contribution to the Trevor Project to help them continue the work they're doing, make an impact, utilize their resources, and learn more at thetrevorproject.org. So my resource for this week is the Jed Foundation. Um, and the Jed Foundation is an organization committed to the mental and emotional health of college students and preventing suicide among this population. The foundation runs several free online self-assessment and resource programs for students and campuses. And it offers training tools for campus professionals to improve their mental health services for students. You can find this resource at jedfoundation.com. So my action item would be for everyone to learn more about the signs of suicide so we can recognize these signs in our friends, family, coworkers, anyone that we're around. Um, one good way to do this might be to uh, get QPR certified. That stands for Question, Persuade, Respond, or Refer. <laughs> um, so the signs are to question if you think that a friend or colleague might be exhibiting some of these signs. That requires you learn the signs, you learn more about like what suicide prevention entails. Um, next would be to persuade people to get the help that they need and seek out these resources depending on the scope of their resources available to them. If they can afford therapy, if they can afford um, just like free resources online um, and then trying to refer them to get that help and persuading them to seek out those resources to prevent anything from happening. Um, another big thing that I think I should note is that I don't consider just lifelines to be it. I think when we think about suicide awareness, we should also think about the different concerns that lead someone to that point. Suicide prevention is not just about um, catching people right before suicide. It's about creating preventative measures to ensure that people don't get to, like housing, healthcare, um, fair and equal pay, all of that is suicide prevention in my book. And I think that by addressing these social and uh, political concerns that we are enacting or we are working towards suicide prevention, even if it's not the traditional definition of what that looks like. Oh, snaps. Thank you so much, Sydney. Thank you for encouraging us to have an episode surrounding this issue and then all, like for September even though it is now October happy October everyone um and also for coming and being a guest so thank you for having me oh my gosh it's been so much fun um, anytime to talk about perks literally no I'm so I'm glad so... I feel like I could talk about it for another hour but I'm so glad um, I watched it it was such a good like movie it really yeah, was it's a good the book like should I read the book the book's Dumb really question. short so of course I should too I feel like I should probably read the book too since it's I've... only like 180 pages uh, wait chump change <laughs> for us English majors or whatever Nellie is I, I am a very slow reader. I will not pretend like I will read that fast. But in case you didn't know, Pay, I majored in religious studies and women's <laughs> gender studies. But <laughs> I did know that. Whatever that was Nellie is. That's <laughs> um, just me throwing shade to anyone that's not an English major. <laughs> you just don't get us. Yeah. Sorry. Um, artsy. Liberal farts. Um, anyway, so before we wrap up, or as we're wrapping up, Sydney, 
Is there a quote you would like to share from the movie? My favorite part of this movie is the final scene. Uh, It's Charlie's last letter. It is on the soundtrack for the movie. The full letter is. I love it so much. But I think just the last lines are so hopeful. And I think I wrote it in my notes, actually. So yeah, the part where he says, I can see it. The one moment when you know you're not a sad story. You are alive. And as you stand up and see all the lights on the buildings and everything that makes you wonder, and you're listening to that song on that drive with the people you love most in this world, I swear, we are infinite. I just got chills from me reading that. It's so good. I love that final line. Thanks, Sydney. Is there anything you want to plug? Like, any of your own things? Not really. I always ask that. Usually people are like, no. I mean, unless you want to plug your personal Instagram. If you guys want to see my Twitter rants, it's at literate Sydney. Um, Yeah, I got you. Follow me now. Follow it. Follow it, followers. Follow it, listeners. Follow it if you're cool. (laughs) Follow if you're cool. And also follow us on Spotify, thanks. Oh, and our Instagram. Oh, yeah, and our that. Instagram at Feminist Fiends. This is literally the most chaotic intro outro. <laughs> All right, well, this has been Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens. Bye! Bye! Bye.